Well, good morning. It is good to see you all of you. It is good to be gathered again. Uh, I don't know, a lot of you uh, have asked me this morning about my evening last night. Some of you saw the post uh, that went out. I was able to participate in a daddy-daughter dance uh, with my younger two, and it was a wonderful time uh, just being together, uh, a date night and a dance was wonderful. Um, I quickly realized how young and energetic they are and how old and frail I am. Um, I was never more happy than to get home knowing that waiting on me was a recliner and ibuprofen and knee braces. And um, I never thought those would be things I would ever look forward to in my life. But all that to say, it was a wonderful evening. And so thank you guys for asking who have asked. Um, man, I'm just, I'm just tickled to death about that time that I get to spend with my children and uh, just to be able to, to share in just celebration and joy of life together. Well, uh, we are again walking through the book of Ruth. And so I would invite you now to go ahead and turn with me to Ruth chapter three. Again, walking through our series in the book of Ruth. We got this week and then we'll wrap up next week uh, with Ruth chapter four. And so I pray that this uh, study through the book of Ruth has been uh, just a time of encouragement for you uh, because it's been very encouraging me to, for me to be able to walk through this book. Again, this is a series that we have titled Daily Bread, where over the past couple weeks and the couple weeks that we have left in our study, we are still seeing the grace and the goodness of God that is played out in our daily lives. Except as we've walked through the book of Ruth, the Ruth, we've been seeing the grace of God played out in the life of Ruth and in the life of of Naomi. So this morning we're going to continue in our text and really we're going to come to probably the most tense part of our text, the most climactic scene that we have in the entire book of Ruth. You see this morning we're going to see Ruth take a huge risk. She's going to risk her reputation. She's going to risk her life and ultimately it's going to leave us with the question that we should ask of ourselves, what am I willing to risk? And when it comes to what am I willing to risk, for what am I willing to risk everything for? You see, here's the reality that we now live in in our world today. Many of us are willing to put up with all kinds of discomforts and all kinds of costs for the sake of fun. Many of us are willing to, to, to put up all kinds of risk for, and discomforts uh, for, the, for receiving a promotion or for bettering our family or even having a family. Now, to take this one step further, many of us are, are willing to take risks simply for the thrill of life. Because for whatever reason, we enjoy living on that edge that exists between life and what could be death. I mean, think of all the things that we can do that could ultimately take our life, but we enjoy them as things that are fun. I'll give you some examples. Jumping out of a perfectly good airplane with a parachute strapped to your back that you did not pack. Risk, right? But for those who have done it, worth it, right? Let me give you another example. This is my opinion. Snow skiing. Strapping two narrow pieces of fiberglass to your feet, which are not narrow, and flying down the side of a mountain. Just isn't smart. Worth the risk, right? Right. Some of you said yes. I would say no. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. If we ever go skiing together, no, I am that person who will sit in the lodge, pray for your safety, and have a warm cup of coffee ready for you when you get back. Whether it's on your own or with the help of ski patrol. Okay, 
there are other risks we take in life. I want to, I want to just throw out a risk that, that people have taken simply for the thrill of life, climbing Mount Everest. You see, we know that Mount Everest is, is the Earth's highest mountain peak, standing at over 29,000 feet tall. And if you've done any research on climbing Mount Everest, you would know that the cost to climb can range from anywhere between $32,000 and $60,000. So you're already looking at two risks. One, climbing and descending a mountain, and two, spending a whole lot of money to do so. In fact, enough money that you could probably buy a new vehicle with. Now, Many will tell you that this climb, by the time you get to the point where you're ready to climb Mount Everest, is really not for the novice climber. So if your first time ever climbing is to go to Mount Everest and say, let's do this, you have chosen the wrong mountain. I would suggest you start with Hillsborough Community College, nice hills over there. Maybe work your way up to Stone Mountain in Georgia, then get up into Appalachian Mountains, then work your way west. Start somewhere a little simpler. Because you see, the reality is for most people who climb Mount Everest, by the time they get to that point where they're in base camp, many of them are already considered expert climbers. So we're talking about high elevation, which means altitude, which means lack of oxygen. We're talking about winds and weather that can change at a moment's notice. We're talking about snow and ice that can shift at any moment. We're talking about an expensive cost. And on top of that, before you even get to that point, you've got to be an expert within the field. But as if that wasn't daunting enough, listen to this. 310 people have now died climbing the mountain. 310 people. You may think, maybe, maybe a lot, maybe not, I don't know, but think about this. 310 people have died climbing the mountain with over 200 bodies still on the mountain. And sadly, many of those bodies are frozen in time. Many of them are visible. In fact, there's some parts in the climb you've got to step over said bodies in order to make the climb. You see, these bodies are frozen in time as a reminder of the risk of ascending and descending the mountain. Now, you may hear this information and ask yourself at this point, is it worth the risk? Is climbing and descending Mount Everest worth the risk? For many who have done it, they believe it is. They would say, Yes, it is worth it. And here's the truth. Many people today will climb mountains. They will cross seas. They will enter storms. They will work long hours. They will endure pain for all kinds of reasons. And so today we have to ask ourselves, as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of Christ today, as those who can declare, praise the Lord, He is alive. We have to ask ourselves this morning, is the gospel worth the risk? And here's the sad truth. Many of us would be unwilling to risk health. We would be unwilling to risk wealth. We would be unwilling to risk comfort. We would be unwilling to risk reputation for the sake of sharing Jesus Christ. In fact, this is what uh, Francis Schaeffer has actually called our guilty silence. He says that the most obvious proof of our aversion to spiritual risk lies in our unwillingness to talk to others about God. You see, many of us will come to worship and celebrate and praise God, but we'll, we'll walk out the doors and, and continue to live life as if we don't believe. 
Many of us will, will talk a big game about all the, the places we have been and about all the trips that we have been on and, and all the things we have done for the nations in the name of Jesus, but we will not share with our coworkers. We will not share with our classmates. We won't even talk to the people who live across the street from us about the good news of Jesus Christ. We have no problem talking about how we voted and what policies we voted on and what, what local ordinances and local officials and federal officials that we voted on. We have no problem discussing these things. We have no problem talking about statistics of our favorite sports teams or, or favorite quotes from books that we've read or movies that we've read, all these wonderful things. But yet in the same conversations with the same people who don't know Jesus, we will not even take a moment to talk to them about the gospel. Why? At this point, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ really worth the risk? Looking at our text this morning, we're going to see that Ruth, before us in, in Ruth chapter 3, is going to put her reputation and her life on the line to not only honor Naomi and the commitment that she's made to Naomi, but she's going to put her life on the line to make sure that her family is now taken care of. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at the story of Ruth again. And I want us to look at Ruth's risk and see that when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to God, when it comes to trusting the Lord with our daily bread, we should be able to say with affirmation and boldness that yes, Jesus Christ is always worth the risk. So again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to begin reading in Ruth chapter 3. And when you find your place there, before you stand up, I want to say that we're going to treat this like we did last week, where we're going to actually take a couple passages at a time and a couple sections of passages at a time and read them and then pause and then kind of unpack what's happening as we are reading it. So uh, for the sake of, of time and energy and, and, and reading and then rereading the text, I just want to ask you to stay seated right where you are and let's just go ahead and jump right into this passage. Now, again, before we get into the text, I want us to remember what has now transpired by the time we get to Ruth chapter three. First of all, in our first two chapters, we were introduced to all three of our main characters. We met uh, Naomi first, followed by Ruth and and then ultimately we met Boaz. And so for this chapter, chapter three, our focus is really going to turn uh, to the relationship that exists or will exist between Boaz and Ruth. But before we move back into this story and, and see this tense moment that takes place in the conversation between Ruth and Boaz, I want us to, to, to move back in our story and look at Naomi and be reminded of Naomi one more time. You see, in chapter one and two, we saw that Naomi was living in her own bitterness. And in the midst of her own bitterness, she was only concerned with herself and, and she had no time for anyone else. She wanted to, to blame everyone and everything, even blaming God uh, for her circumstances. And so by the time we arrived at the end of chapter two, getting into chapter three, we see that Naomi has now been reminded of the goodness of God. We see this heart change that has now taken place as she sees God's daily provision or better yet, God's daily bread. And for once, as we get into chapter three, she begins to think of others as opposed to just thinking of herself. You see, by the time we get to this passage, Naomi has come to full repentance and now her heart has been softened to what is happening around her and has been softened to what we called God's covenant faithfulness in all things, which is what we talked about last week. So before we move on from Naomi, and we're going to see Naomi at the beginning of the story and again at the end of this story, but before we move on from her and her character, I want us to learn from Naomi in a moment. You see, we learn from Naomi that bitterness can drive us inward into self-absorbed depression. Can I just tell you this morning, if you've walked in today bitter towards something, bitter towards someone, can I just tell you a simple fact? You're 
bitterness is only affecting you. Chances are it's not even affecting the person that you're bitter towards. It's probably not even affecting the situation that you may bitter be bitter towards. You may have last night sat in your home and in your bitterness said, I hope this person that I'm bitter towards has a restless night. And I want to tell you, they probably slept better than they have the entire week. Now, why do I tell you that? Because I want us to understand that forgiveness is a two-way street. We don't just forgive people when they repent of their sins, but even when they are unwilling to repent, we forgive them so that we don't rest and dwell in our own bitterness. You see, bitterness will drive us to anger. It'll drive us into depression. It'll drive us into becoming so self-absorbed, like we saw from Naomi in the earlier chapters, that we miss the big picture. We miss what it is that God is doing. While repentance enables us to see God. Repentance enables us to see the goodness of God even in the midst of the darkest moments. Repentance enables us to then serve the needs of others. Because we realize in repentance, it's not just about us. It's about how we are faithfully called to serve. So looking at our text, our story is going to continue and we see yet another need must be met for Ruth. Ruth needs a husband. Which again, we're talking about Ruth's days, ancient Jewish history days where it was common for for single women and widowed women to remarry, especially if they were young in age. And so Ruth knew this. Naomi also knew this. Yet it was Ruth, as we see in our story, who would be the one who knew what she needed to do. And so it was Ruth who knew that she would have to be willing to risk it all in order to continue to care for Naomi and for her family. But as we're going to see in our text, Ruth knew of God's provision. And as we read together, we see that this passage teaches us That in the midst of God's provision for our daily bread, our daily need, in the midst of seeing God's provision, God is always worth the risk. So let's just go ahead and jump into this. This is Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We read these words. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now let's just pause there. Again, we hear Naomi saying to Ruth, Ruth, you need a home of your own. But here's the question we are already opening with as the narrator begins to unpack this story. Who would be willing to take Ruth in? Who would be willing to take in a foreigner? Who would be willing to take in a a, a Moabite? And as we said before in the earlier chapters, the, the Israelite people and the Moabites did not get along. Remember, it was the Moabites who kept trying to convince the Israelites not to enter the promised land. In fact, they tried to turn the people of God away from God to the point where they tried to pay off one of their own prophets to accuse the people that what they were looking for was not going to be found. So here was this Moabite foreigner living amongst the people of promise, knowing that she was not popular amongst the people, simply because of the region she was from. So now think about this, not just from Ruth's perspective, but think about it from a, from a, from a man's perspective, an Israelite man. If a man were to marry Ruth now, he would be taking a risk. 
You see, if, if a man married Ruth, this Moabite foreigner, he would become a social outcast. He could be shunned by the society. He could be shunned by his own family for marrying someone who has always been an enemy to the people of God. And so not only was Ruth fixing to take a risk, but whoever this man would be would be risking everything should he choose to marry Ruth. Verse 2, Naomi continues, Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, again, Boaz is introduced into our story, and Boaz has already proven himself to be a man of character. Okay, we've already been told that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, and Boaz has also shown that not only has he been a kinsman redeemer and a man of character, but he has been willing to make costly provision for the poor and for the needy. He's already shown this in his encounters earlier with Ruth. So we are already now beginning to see that Naomi is now cooking on a plan to help Ruth and to help her family. She's beginning to put the dots together that Ruth should approach Boaz about marriage. So let's continue reading. Verse 3. Naomi continues, Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. You see, Naomi knew and understood that after a night of celebrating the harvest, a night of celebrating the hard work, Boaz being the good and faithful leader, the good and faithful servant that he was, she knew that he would find himself sleeping by the grain in order to guard it overnight. Now think about that for a moment, because Boaz is not just a worker. He is a wealthy landowner. He is about to do something that most, if not all other wealthy landowners did not do. Normally, guarding the grain was left up to the servants. But yet here is Boaz being a man of a character, a man of integrity, a man of God, and he humbles himself even to the point of of finding himself sleeping overnight on the floor to guard his own grain. And it's in this moment That Naomi, in knowing that about Boaz, says to Ruth, get cleaned up, sneak by the other men because Boaz would not be alone and lie down with him. And then he says this, she says this, and then he will tell you what to do. Now, again, I don't know about you, but man, you should start to kind of see the tension that's happening over here. We, we've kind of see, we've all probably read stories or seen stories that are similar to this. And, and we know that, that this moment could lead to anything, right? I mean, we, we all understand that as, as, as a mature adult in the room. So what do we have here is the beginning of what could very well be a very tense moment. But I want us to understand something else. When you actually read this part of the passage in the original Hebrew language, you clearly see that Naomi's instructions to Ruth are actually extremely ambiguous. So everything that she has said to Ruth about what Ruth should do could really have multiple meanings. So let's just let's unpack what this could mean uh, for Ruth in this moment. Naomi, in this moment, could have wanted Ruth to seduce Boaz in this moment, which would mean that Naomi was hoping for Ruth to really seek a good goal, which was the care for her family, but she was asking Ruth to do it in a very wrong way. 
Thus, we are seeing that Naomi is still struggling with trusting the daily provision of God and therefore the faithfulness of God. So that's one way to interpret this passage. Or another way to interpret it is this. Naomi may not have been thinking that at all. Rather, what Naomi was thinking was asking Ruth to put her life and her reputation again in the hands of a man in a desperate attempt to get the kinsman redeemer to be the kinsman redeemer for her family. All that to say, we don't truly know the motives for Naomi other than she wants her family cared for. And remember, when we talk about Naomi's family, Naomi has spoken of Ruth as a part of this family again. That's how we ended our last chapter. So all of a sudden, we don't know what's going to happen, but what we do know is we have a very serious, intense moment that could go wrong in a hurry. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Think about what Ruth was being asked to do. Think about the, the huge risk she was being asked to undertake. She could go and do everything that Naomi said. And because she was a foreigner and a Moabite, she could have been attacked. Boaz could have woken up and said, attack this woman, and the rest of the men would have just ripped her to shreds. And there would have been no defense for her because she was not one of them. So yet again, Ruth finds herself in a position like she did when she was out in the field, putting her life in the hands of another. And yet, as we continue to read, we see that Ruth is willing to do it because her family was worth it. Let's continue to read in verse 5. And she replied, Ruth replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now notice here that Ruth has agreed to Naomi's plans up to a certain point, and more on that in just a moment. And so as we see in the text, after a long day of work, a long day of celebrating, Boaz returns, as was expected, to the grain, feeling good about what has happened, good about a life of, of just a hard day's work that you end in a successful manner, and he just simply falls asleep. And as he is fast asleep, Ruth then sneaks past the other men, uncovers the feet of Boaz, and lays at his feet. Now, all of a sudden, in the midst of our story, the plan and the risk were now in full play, and Ruth has no choice but to trust what is going to happen next. Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now let's just pause there and take stock of what's happened. At midnight, Boaz comfortably laying down, belly full, well hydrated, sleeping great, doing what no parent in this room is currently doing has a great nice rest. And like every person in this room probably wakes up in the middle of the night, maybe a little chilly from the cold air, reaches for his blanket and instead of getting a handful of blanket, gets a handful of a woman. 
Now, I want you to think about that moment for a minute, okay? Could you imagine that? First of all, I want to talk to my wives in the room. Wives, I want to know how many of you are laying in your bed at the feet of your husband? You are not. I would imagine it is safe to argue in this room that many women in this room, if asked to lay at the feet of her husband, probably would not do so for the simple reason that you know what your husband's feet look like. You probably won't even touch them. You probably don't even know if your husband realizes that his feet are not beautiful at all. They probably look more like hobbit's feet. They're dirty. They're hairy. Toenails everywhere. Calluses everywhere. I mean, I couldn't imagine if I looked at my wife and said, Allison, tonight, I would like for you to lay at my feet. I imagine her response would be, Johnny, tonight, I invite you to lay on the couch. I would imagine that's how that would go. But let's think about one more perspective in this story, okay? So not not just the ladies. Let's think about this from all of our perspective, okay? Could you imagine being Boaz in this moment? Could you imagine all of a sudden waking up in the middle of the night thinking that you're grabbing a blanket and what you grab is not a blanket at all? Could you imagine what would happen in that moment? Some of us have probably had that happen to us where we reach over and what we reach for is really not what we wanted at all. Maybe you have a a nightstand with a water bottle on it and you thought, oh, I'm going to grab my water. And you grab something else, it's not the water, and you knock your water over and spill it everywhere. Maybe maybe you're like me, okay? And here's what happens to you in the middle of the night. When my children were younger, I remember my kids would come into my room all the time asking questions in the middle of the night. Questions like, can I have water? You know where the fridge is. Get your own water. They would ask questions like, uh, like, Dad, can I, or Mom, Dad, can I, can I go to the bathroom? Are you kidding me? You passed it on your way. You don't need my permission. But I distinctly remember a time where a child walked into our room unannounced in the middle of the night and we were sound asleep. And all of a sudden, my wife opened her eyes and all she saw was the silhouette of a glowing child because of the alarm clock and she screamed. And I want to tell you, my next reaction was to jump up, grab a weapon, and prepare for war. But that's not true at all. My reaction was to jump up, fall out of bed, and hit the floor and stay there till I knew everything was okay. And it was just one of my kids. So just imagine what this moment would have been like for Ruth, but then imagine what it must have been like for Boaz in this moment and how we would respond in this moment. But now look at the text again, and let's pay attention to verse 9. Because I want us to see that it's here in this moment that Ruth follows Naomi's plan up until this point. And she then diverges from Naomi's plan. And instead of being ambiguous, instead of remaining in silence, allowing Boaz to determine what should happen, notice that Ruth makes her plans clear to Boaz. She says to him, listen, my goal is simple. I want a commitment to marriage, and I don't want a night of passion. Now you may ask, how does this statement point us to marriage when she's simply talking about placing a blanket over her or a robe over her? Well, go back and read Ezekiel chapter 16. You'll see that in ancient days, covering a woman with the corner of a robe symbolized engagement. Now, fellas, I don't know about you, but when you study Ezekiel 16 and you read that, you think, wow, I could have saved a lot of money on an engagement ring. That would have been way simpler because that would be the equivalent of today's engagement ring. 
So you see in this moment in the text, Ruth wanted Boaz to marry her, and yet Boaz, even as the kinsman redeemer, was not under the obligation to do so. But again, pay attention to the text. Remember, it was Naomi who wanted Ruth to be silent, yet Ruth decided to speak and to make her intentions of marriage clear to a man of character who was now being asked to risk everything to marry a Moabite woman. And then notice the response of Boaz beginning in verse 10. It says, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. I want us to pay attention in the text to how Boaz begins with the words, may you be blessed by the Lord. And then he says the phrase, my daughter, and he says it twice. You see, in this moment, Boaz is acknowledging that he clearly understands the situation. He clearly understands that he is not being misled by the actions of Ruth. He knows her to be a woman of character. He knows her to be a woman of integrity. And he knows that that she is not looking for a single moment, but rather she is looking for a commitment. And so Boaz declares himself willing to take the risk to marry Ruth and to face whatever social and financial risk that would come by marrying someone outside of the people of promise. Boaz, in this moment, recognizes that Ruth could have pursued any man, a younger man who could give her children, whether they were wealthy or whether they were poor, she could have pursued any man, but she chose a man of character over all other qualities. Now, I want you to pay attention to how this passage also ends. It ends by Boaz saying to her, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, this is actually an interesting passage when you look at it because it literally translates into this phrase, all the gates of my people knows that you are a woman of worth. Now, you hear that and you may think, well, why on earth is that even interesting? Well, I would encourage you to go back and read Proverbs chapter 31, the second half of verse 31. When we're talking about a woman of character and a woman of integrity and a woman of God, a woman that that as ladies we should be praying to be like, and as fellows we should be praying that we find this woman uh, so that we can spend the rest of our days with her. When you get to the second half of 3131, it says this, and let her works praise her in the gates. Do you hear what Boaz just declared over Ruth? He says that Ruth is a true Proverbs 31 woman to where her work is praised. And it's praised at the gates. Notice what's happened here. In just a few short weeks, the time where we've been introduced to all these characters, work has been done, faithfulness has been provided, blessing has been provided. Notice what happens. Ruth has gone from being an unknown, ignored foreigner to now being praised as a faithful servant who cares for her family. And notice that she did all of this without having to brag on herself to get to this point. She let her work do the talking. Brothers and sisters, I think we should learn from from Ruth in this moment because this is a good lesson for us. Sometimes I think as believers, we do too much talking. 
Sometimes I think as believers, we do, we do too much bragging on ourselves and bragging on all of our accomplishments when the reality is we just need to let our actions do the talking. Oftentimes we are too critical uh, and quick to, to criticize others when the reality is we don't need to be quick to criticize at all. Rather, what we should do is just let our actions do the talking. When people come questioning us, we just answer the question and continue to be faithful to what it is that God has called us to. Why? Because our actions will always speak louder than our words. Now again, coming back to the text, we want to think that our story ends here on a positive note, but I want us to pay attention. Boaz is now about to drop uh, another point of conflict, another point of, uh, of tension, and he's going to do it one more time. He says in verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Notice that Boaz now tells Ruth that there is another kinsman redeemer who is actually closer to her family. Thus, by right and law of the day, he had more of a claim on Ruth and Naomi than Boaz did. Now, I imagine at this point, Ruth had to be feeling good about how things were going. She had to be feeling good about how things were progressing. She saw where Boaz was laying. She snuck past all the other men. She was able to, to lie down with Boaz in this moment. She then spoke, made her intentions clear. Boaz says, hey, I trust what you're saying to me, and you're safe right here. And I, I imagine at this point she had to be feeling good, but then all of a sudden he drops this line on her, and it had to be a bit of a blow to her plan, and it had to be a bit of a blow to her. But I want us to pay attention to Boaz again, because Boaz, being a man of character, did not leave Ruth wondering about her status. He said that if the other man will care for her, then all is good, and praise God. However, if he rejects the idea, then notice that Boaz gives his word. He says, as Christ li or as God lives... Okay, by the way, we just sang that. We know he lives. As he lives, I give you my word. He says, I give you my word that I will undertake the service of marrying you and caring for you and caring for Naomi. Notice this. Either way, however this goes, Ruth and Naomi would be cared for, whether by the other kinsman redeemer or by Boaz himself. Then Boaz instructs Ruth to go before it was light and before the other men that noticed her. Thus, if they did wake up and notice her, it would tarnish her reputation unfairly. And so Boaz, again, shows that he cares for Ruth and he cares for the perception that the people may have about Ruth. Now, again, let's learn from Boaz in this moment. We live in a world that is too quick to criticize. I mean, it is so easy to criticize. We have social media now. And uh, man, people quit posting recipes and, and fun facts. And now we're, we're quickly criticizing everything. We have websites dedicated to, to criticism. We have evaluations dedicated to criticism. And I'm not just talking about the secular world. I'm, I'm talking about Christians as well. As Christians, there have been days where Christians have gone on the offensive in terms of attacking and criticizing other Christians. So I want us to learn from Boaz in this moment. We should learn from Boaz that, that we are called to care and should care to defend one another's reputation. 
We should care to defend one another's integrity and preserve their character and integrity. Not criticize it. Not become critical of it. You see, Boaz cared for Ruth. He cared for her family. He cared about what the Lord had called him to do as a kinsman redeemer. And at the same time, he cared for her reputation. He didn't want to see that tarnished. And so I have to ask ourselves, do we care for one another in that same way? But let's continue reading. Verse 14. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And she said, let it not be known, or he said, let it not be known that the women came or that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Now let's pause there again. Boaz, again, being a man of character, when it's time for Ruth to leave, notice what he does. He doesn't leave her empty handed. And again, key word being empty handed right there. We'll come back to that in just a moment. What Boaz does is he loads her up with six measures of barley. Now, there's been a lot of talk about what six measures of barley would look like, but there's quite a few scholars who actually agree that six measures of barley is not something that you fit in a little sack. Rather, what we're talking about is more like 80 pounds of barley, which makes sense as to why the text then says, and put it on her. I never understood that because I grew up thinking a measure, a six measures of barley was like something that you put in a little pouch, kind of like when we left the dance last night, they gave us like a little pouch of candy. And I'm like, really? You fed us sugar, you made us dance and you left us with sugar? Like, this is like a, a bad nightmare. Like you're sending me home with this, okay? And so I, I couldn't figure out why in this story it would say this little bag and then put it on her. I was trying to imagine what that must've been like. Did Boaz really feel like a little, like a small sack, like a small satchel, tie it off and go, I'm gonna place this on your shoulder versus your hand? That just doesn't make any sense to me. But then when you study the fact that six measures was roughly 80 pounds, all of a sudden it makes sense as to why Boaz would have to help her with this. 80 pounds is heavy. And he had to help her put it on her. Again, clearly we're seeing that Boaz is a man who is still faithful to bless. But at the same time, I want us to understand something about Ruth because we've seen it in the way she worked in the field. As as the workman said, she's been working in the field all day and she's only stopped once for a short rest. And then she carried grain home. I want us to understand that that Ruth here is not some frail woman. She's not a slouch. She had to carry 80 pounds of barley past sleeping men, which honestly is easier. If you have a husband, you know what I'm talking about. Men sleep through everything. I sleep through everything. Then she had to walk from where she was back into the town and then walk home with 80 pounds of grain. This was no small feat. And so we see that Ruth was clearly a strong woman. However, don't miss the biblical symbolism that we have here as well. Notice that it says that she was given six measures, which would have been a number to symbolize incompleteness. Because the number seven actually stood for fullness or completeness itself. Notice how the narrator is now showing us that even though Ruth received another blessing from Boaz, the blessing was not yet complete. In other words, God was not done providing for Ruth and God was not done providing for Naomi. And so chapter three ends similarly to what we see in chapter two. So let's finish this together in verse 16. It says, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? 
Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Again, Ruth arrives home, and Naomi asks her a question. But here's what's interesting. When you study this in the original language, this question is actually a little bit different. And scholars have been debating the meaning of this question, and both translations are actually correct. One translation reads as what we just read, which is Naomi looking at Ruth saying, how did it go? Which makes sense in our passage. Somebody walks in after this crazy plan you've concocted, what's the first question you're going to ask them? How did it go? But a more literal translation has Naomi asking this question. Who are you, my daughter? Notice in this translation, Naomi's actually asking the question, who is this Moabite woman? Who is this, who is this foreigner? Who is this outsider who came into this place and knew no one and now has found favor with our Redeemer? Maybe she's more than I thought she was. Ruth didn't just come home with a story, though. She came home with grain. Remember I said that Boaz said to her, I don't want you to return empty-handed? Well, that word empty-handed is the same word again that takes us back to Naomi when she comes into the promised land and says, I have come empty with nothing. So pay attention to the wordplay here. God was constantly reminding Naomi that she was not empty at all. It was the Lord who provided food. It was the Lord who provided a place to rest. It was the Lord who promised a hope to provide hope for their future. But God was not done there. There was more to come. God had more to reveal to Naomi. God had more to reveal to Ruth to prove that he is always worth the risk. And by the way, there's foreshadowing in this chapter for what is to come. Go back with me to verse 12. Notice in the middle of that passage, Boaz says these words, Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Boaz was talking about another kinsman redeemer who we are going to meet in chapter 4. Okay, we know that's coming. But I want us to pay attention to something here in this phrase. Because when you read this phrase and you read through everything that Ruth and Naomi have been through to this point, all through this story, there has been a redeemer closer than Boaz. There has been a redeemer who's been hovering in the shadows. There has been a redeemer who has been behind Naomi and before Naomi and beside Naomi and above Naomi and below Naomi. There has been a redeemer providing for Naomi and providing all through the story and for Ruth as well. You see, behind our story and behind our characters, there has been a Redeemer reaching out to His beloved. There has been a Redeemer showing grace upon grace upon grace for all of His sheep. It's the same Redeemer who we read about in the Gospels. The same Redeemer who would pay the ultimate price for His people. The same Redeemer who would look upon wretched sinners like you and like me and say, you 
are mine. The same Redeemer who would not just provide for immediate needs, but rather would secure our future for all eternity. There is a Redeemer and His name is Jesus. And He has always been closer to us than any other human agent. And I want to ask you a question this morning as we close. As we read this text together, do you see God at work in the life of Ruth? Do you see God's provision in this story? Do you see God provide daily bread? And I hope by God's grace you can read this. And, and as you've been with us, you can answer, the, you can answer this uh, with 100% affirmation and boldness and say, yes, I can see God providing. And if that's where you are today, then I need to ask you a follow-up question. What in our life makes us think that God hasn't done the same for us? What makes us question the risk of following Jesus Christ? You see, for Ruth, her reputation and her life was on the line, and yet she determined that it was all worth the risk. And so for us today, our faith could cost us our reputation. Our faith could cost us our comfort. It could cost us our health. It could cost us our wealth. We may lose it all. We may find ourselves believing that we are surrounded by like-minded brothers and sisters when all of a sudden we come to the word of God and we say to them, listen, I hear you, but I feel like what you're trying to do over here is make up of a brand of Christianity that doesn't exist when the reality is we have a standard and it's called the word of God. You may find yourself in that moment and then all these people that you thought were with you may walk away from you in that moment. And so we have to ask the question, is Jesus Christ worth the risk? And my prayer for all of us today is that we would answer wholeheartedly, yes, even then he is worth the risk because he risked it all for me, and he is alive today. And so, yes, he is worth it. And so I would say to you that my hope this morning is that we, as his people, would speak of our Redeemer. That we would speak of our Redeemer who provided more for us than grain. That we would speak boldly of our Redeemer who provided eternal life by His blood and that we would speak of our Redeemer as the one who is truly worthy. Because the reality is this, Jesus Christ is always worth the risk. Let's pray to that end.